0: Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR, from emdr approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here.
1: Notice that an EMDR podcast. Bridger and I are in the studio today um, with two interviews, interviewees that we have. So we're super excited to be here and get to hear a little bit more on working with teens, adolescents, and their caregivers. Yes. Um, so I will start with introducing just briefly. Nicole and Annie are both here. And I would love, honestly, for you to introduce yourselves and share a little bit more about yourselves individually, so that our listeners can get to know you, Annie. Some of our listeners may be already familiar with you; um, yeah. they may not recognize you without the hat and the glasses yeah. and the voice from last time, but um, it is the same
2: person. So it is the same person. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'll go ahead and start. So I'm Annie Monaco. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm in Buffalo, New York. So. So my history really is, um, you know, we all have our own teen memories, right? So that's really where the history starts is who we are as teenagers ourselves. And then when I got into this field, um, I started at a mental health clinic working with uh, mostly teens and children. And, you know, they were very challenging population, right? They would swear at you, they would walk out of the room, they would refuse to talk. Um, they would say swear words, right? All of those kinds of things, and so, so it was really through just obviously many, many challenges of, of understanding them and just getting better at it. So, so really, my history is working in mental health clinics for two different clinics for twenty years, um, and so that's uh, partly where I met Nicole. Is that we met and uh, worked at a program where we worked with offenders. And so uh, teenagers who committed crimes, we also had sex offenders um, as part of our larger programs. But uh, I we developed these restorative justice programs, family therapy programs, and doing trauma work with both caregivers and, um, and the teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really been my love. One of my loves is just working with the angry, um, hostile teenager who refuses to talk. Um, And it's just, you know, we've learned the skills together about how to engage this population, so that they can really move past what's going on in their life.
1: Yeah. Beautiful. I I just already feel the softness that you have towards this population, which I think, we need more of that. Like our yes. community and society needs so much more softness and like honoring of yeah. this developmental stage because we all go through it and yes. it's hard. It's a really hard stage.
2: Yeah, we survived it, right? We did. Yeah.
1: Survive. Exactly. yeah, right? mm-hmm. yeah. Definitely. Nicole, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure.
3: So my name is Nicole Wallace, and uh, like Annie, I'm a licensed clinical social worker in Buffalo, New York as well. Um, I have been in the field for the last 20 years. Um, Annie and I have known each other for 20 years. Um, I started out as an intern with Annie in the restorative justice programs. Um, I love to talk about being Annie's intern. That was always fun. Um, but, you know, for 20 years, Annie and I have worked together and I have developed and really grown a passion for working with teens. I always knew um, when I was an intern that this was the work that I wanted to do with teens and their families. Um yeah. I think there's so many people that will ask me the questions around, how do you work with teenagers? They're so challenging. And then we have the challenging parents. And mm-hmm. I say, I can't imagine doing anything other than that, right? It's mm-hmm. it's truly my passion. Um, and I think that when I was working with Annie in the restorative justice programs, having a family therapy program and developing this true love for working with families And then becoming an EMDR therapist and figuring out how to weave in the trauma work with parents, with um, siblings, you know, including the whole family um, towards change really has just been, I think, the biggest gift. So um, just, you know, the passion of doing family therapy with teens and really infusing that EMDR piece as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's hard to imagine how it could be any other way.
3: Like, yes.
1: mm-hmm, how you could really treat the adolescent without looking at the whole family system. Yes. Yeah. So much more barrier to getting in and being able to help if we don't have access to the family unit. Yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah. One of my focuses, just in um, my kind of professional identity, is helping counselors and therapists develop throughout their lifespan. And Nicole, just you mentioning that you started as an intern Mm -hmm. where, you know, that's not something you were yet trained in EMDR, I'm assuming. And you're just having a passion for the population that you're working with. And so I'm curious just about your development there Mm -hmm. as I'm passionate about this, this population. And I want to go to this place where they're working with these individuals from a systemic perspective but then, how does how does it look to go from that systems oriented therapy approach to doing EMDR with this, with this it's,
3: it's so interesting because um, you know I think of being a student and I was not EMDR trained. You know, although our the um, in Buffalo we have a university that offers EMDR training, so there is an ability in our area to get EMDR trained while you're getting your master's. Um, so I think that's kind of unique that's very cool. too. But so right after I graduated and was then working for Annie, um, there was this idea because Annie was so passionate about trauma therapy. And she said, you have to get EMDR trained. So I was trained very early in my career. Um, and it just, as, as all of us who have been trained in EMDR, um, it just fit. Right. So it just fit. It made sense for me. I think, you know, in working in the field a little bit, um, you know, that idea of supportive therapy, I always looked at EMDR is transformative. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of going from supportive therapy therapy to transformative therapy and transforming the family system, I think, just really made sense to me um, as a therapist. It's interesting because my dad was a therapist. Um, So I always love to tell the story that my dad, the day he retired is the day I became a therapist. So it's kind of like it's in my in my blood a little bit. Um, But I also, you know, worked for an agency and had very passionate supervisors that really helped to guide me towards understanding how important it is to look at cases from a trauma lens. So that's kind of how I landed there. Mm -hmm. What a powerful influence from the very
1: beginning Mm -hmm. You get to start your career development and professional development with that foundation. And Annie, it seems like you were a really big part of that.
2: Yeah. She, you know, so previous staff wear a t-shirt that says I survived Annie Monaco as a director. (laughs) So, uh, So, you know, I, I, I really was, I guess, passionate. So, so you know, this interesting thing that happened to Nicole and I is when I became director, Nicole became an intern, there was other staff. And so we had three models thrown at us. We had restorative justice that our agency asked me to implement in the county of where we lived. We were um, given a grant to take this functional family therapy program. And I took an EMDR class at the same time. So now I'm, I'm, you know, I have this responsibility to make all three happen at one time, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's why I, I joked that I survived because it was this, we have to go for restorative justice training, we have to get more family therapy training, we have to do EMDR, we have to go to, you know. And it was so much, but wow, it shaped exactly who we are today, right? And I'm so grateful yeah. for that opportunity because you know, if I talk a little bit about um, the family therapy piece, Nicole and I can't look at clients in any other way. And that really is the gift because we see a family struggling. And Nicole and I say, how do we help the family? You know, I always tell the story, um, and this was functional family therapy taught us that you had to engage the parents. And so This father refused to be part of sessions. And I said to the kid, who drove you today? And he said, my dad. And so I go, I'll be back. (laughs) And I went out to the parking lot and I knock on the window and the father's like, I go, hi, are you Joe's dad? He's like, yeah. I go, oh, gosh, I really need you in the session. You really are the best person that's going to heal your son. And he opened his door and he came up and that was the beginning right but that's who i became was this bold therapist that i was going to change the family system and you know i i tell the story that there's probably in my my 30 years of you know being in the field i've probably given up on five parents right that i just said they can't do it right even bio parents or birth parents i worked hard to help them reunify with their child, so, yeah, yeah. So that family therapy influence is really how then we learned to operate within the system and with parents and with children. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: and I've seen. I have a strong. I, if I can just add, I have a strong memory of being, you know, a, a new young therapist and Annie walking through the waiting room. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Annie, but, <laughs> um, you know, and saying to parents and kids that were sitting waiting, connection, connection, connecting, right? She used to really stress the need for connection and attachment. And I, you know, as a new therapist, I'm, I'm thinking this is what I'm supposed to do. So I really have to talk about connection, right? But of course, as time goes on and we do the family work, we realize how truly important that is, that connection and encouragement of that attachment relationship. So, yeah. I, I mean, I always think of that.
2: Yeah. Well, and that connection just to us, and this is where therapists get right. tripped up, right? They say the kid has to connect to me, which is 100% true, but, right. my, but I'm not going to live with this child, right? I'm not adopting this child. And this child has to have long-term connections mm-hmm. outside of me, right? I may be in that child's life for a long time for various situations, but really me helping them find other attachment figures is really the key. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I think within EMDR, when you say I'm, I'm an EMDR therapist or I'm certified in EMDR, there's this phenomenon that some people know what you're talking about or think they do, and other people don't know what they're talking about, but maybe no one really understands it as you mean it. Um, So I would love for you to just speak a little bit to what does it mean to you both to integrate restorative justice with, you know, family systems and EMDR? Like, what does that even mean to you both?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll give my story and then Nicole, you give. Mm -hmm. So restorative justice, just for those that might not know what it is, um, it's really helping um, children or adults, whoever commits a crime or causes harm. So it's not always committing a crime, but it's causing harm and allowing them to take responsibility in a way that is you know is decent and human we're not shaming kids we're allowing them to come together with their victims so nicole and i used to have these powerful we call them rj sessions right where we'd bring victim and offenders together where kids would see that the that the graffiti that they wrote on the side of the house was the 80 year old woman who's walking with a cane right? right and so you know what happens any kid sees that he starts crying right And then you hear that, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know it was you who lived in that house. And then giving that child the opportunity to make amends with the victim. And that could be paying money back, could be painting the house. I mean, we have phenomenal stories we could take the whole time and tell cool stories about kids making amends, but you know, it's such a missing piece in our society, right? You know, I always, you know, I came from an Italian mother. So if I did something wrong, I was being walked to go tell somebody I'm sorry, right? Um, mm. Or I took a grape out. I was six mm-hmm. years old. I ate a grape in the grocery store, and my mother'd maybe walk to the manager to apologize for stealing, right? Like the learning oh. of the lessons, right? Um, and so, so we did that program for kids that needed it, for who had committed crimes. But then we had this, this family that we were working with and improving skills, communication, connection. And then Nicole and I remember this conversation is that um, we said, well, why wouldn't we provide EMDR to everybody, the kid and the parents and the siblings? So there was enough of us therapists. Then we all got trained. I made everybody get trained in EMDR. And then we would all take everybody and do EMDR and the system got put back together, mm-hmm. and then they all would terminate because they were all healed, right? And so those are that's how I ended up integrating all three of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. the I think that yeah,
3: that's a that's a great example. I mean, I think we like Annie mentioned we have so many good examples of that. But I also think within the family system, sometimes there is harm. Within the family, right? Yeah. And so there's yeah. been a lot, a lot of my work and a lot of my passion is around working within that family system using restorative principles, right? So the acceptance yeah. of responsibility, the acknowledgement of harm, and then figuring out how to repair the harm. And, you know, in doing EMDR, I, th- I think the idea, as Annie mentioned, is to offer EMDR as a service to everyone, but we also include parents in some of the EMDR sessions, right? So when we have kids that are struggling to make it through a memory, or it's a memory that makes sense to have a parent present, we are absolutely including parents because parents' perspective can shift in hearing the kid's story, the kid's pain, their child struggle. Um, And I think that, you know, the goal, the idea is that the family gets stronger by viewing it from that lens, right? So we're looking at attachment theory. We're we're looking at sometimes structural dissociation. We're looking at RJ principles. So, you know, when I have um, new folks that come on board and work with me, they they go, wow, this is a lot. And I say, but it's picking, you know, the stuff that we know and we're infusing it into the work, right? In a way that makes sense to the family. And so for me, really, it's about within the family system trying to shift, um, you know, just some of the harm that's been caused and for siblings to get involved too, right? So siblings are so often when there's something that's gone on within a family, you know, I think I have a client that I talk about in um, our training that um, has a, you know, sexual abuse history himself, but then offended against his sister. So this caused so much pain within the family, yeah. that doing some good family work, getting good EMDR, really, truly did shift um, this child and the family system.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We have a, a phrase that we use in our training that's no villains, no heroes. And as mm-hmm. you guys are talking, that just like keeps playing. Mm-hmm. The work that you're doing is really the epitome of like, we are not making anybody a villain in the story. Right. Yeah. In fact, we're seeking out. What role did you play, and how could you actually participate in the healing process? How could you be a part of the repair and the healing, um, rather than you know identifying them as the
3: villain of the story and isolating them from the process? Yeah. And I think it's seeking understanding, right? So so we're we're really going in in a place of seeking understanding from everyone within the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love that no villains, no heroes. That's, that's good. Yeah.
4: And what a difference it can make for the therapist to communicate a narrative that is so different than what may be surrounding that teen and their family and what messages they are getting from the larger society that, well, this is because you're a problem or you're Mm. this, this person is the villain. and, And it kind of Unconsciously seeps into our story making or our meaning making of our identity and our family's identity. Like, what a disconfirming experience it can be for the therapist to hold a completely different narrative uh, than, than what might be outside that door uh, once they leave.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of the dad sitting in his car, probably hiding, expecting yes. you guys are going to shame him or somehow tell him he's totally failed as yeah. a father. And instead, right. of this warm invitation of actually, I really need you.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I yeah. think you could be yeah. the important piece that we're missing.
4: That's like goosebumps, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Just thinking well, about it.
2: You know, and I, it's so I always tell, you know, other clinicians, my specialty is dads, right? Dads are often left out of the equation. Um, for lots of reasons, right? Because they don't want to come in. You know, men are told therapy's not good, right? You know, I always think of this other dad. It's one of the cases I talk about the training. But he walks in, shakes my hand, and goes, "Yeah, you know, just just so you know, I don't like therapy. I don't believe in it." And you know, my response again was my same line, and I said, "That's good because I'm going to ask you to heal your son. You're going to sit with him, and you know, do this and." You know, he became my strongest advocate, right? And he was the one that healed his son. Uh, he sat in an EMDR session and, you know, admitted the harm he caused his son when he was young. Um, yes. And, you know, that's a very interesting case I've talked a lot about because this boy was uncompredic. He pooped his pants for all of his life up until 15.
4: Mm-hmm. Never yeah.
2: was toilet trained, right? And it was the day the dad did the EMDR with him, the next day he stopped, right? And, you know, it doesn't just walk to that moment, right? There's so much that leads up to that. And I was like, really? He's not, you know, and and we are going on nine months and he has stopped, right? Because the, the trauma got healed. But, you know, Nicole and I really, I think one of our biggest things we try to train therapists is, you know, you can include parents in trauma processing sessions. There's a lot yeah. of prep work. We don't do anything without making sure parents are prepared for that moment, ready to take responsibility um, and repairing the harm in a way that them and their child can move forward.
4: Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. It's a lot. Yeah. Wow. i mean. <laughs> I'm just my mind just reeling over all the opportunities of the trauma processing with EMDR, but all the resourcing that could be yes. happening in that space as well. Just so many rich opportunities for integrating something more into the system.
3: Yeah, we. I. I mean, one of the things that I think when Annie and I were putting together um, a training on EMDR with teens was how important it is to talk about the resourcing because i think that you know i like to do on the fly resourcing that's what i i call it with you know kids and parents all the time and not you know sometimes you try things and and then they stick and i think that is one thing that has really stuck is you know just that idea of tell me of an okay enough interaction between the two of you this week mm-hmm. right and so mom shares you know, teenage boy shares and let's just notice what that feeling is in your body and tap that in. Right. Mm -hmm. And what's coming up for you. So these are things that I think parents and kids find so valuable and it's connecting in a way, again, that connection theme um, that maybe they're not even noticing. Right. So it's pointing it out and then installing it and connecting it with the feeling in the body. So just so much good stuff and resourcing. I think what I want to highlight for our listeners in that is that
1: is just a very normal moment of therapy, right? Like yes. that wasn't like you paused therapy right. and went to a certain resource or even said it has to be this state where you're totally calm and connected and yes. like it could yes. be, what was a good enough moment mm-hmm. this week? Yes. It's barely good enough. Yeah. And let's capture that and just so smoothly transition into like, where do you feel in your body? Notice that it doesn't even have to be a whole script or an elaborate plan, mm-hmm. but that is resourcing and creating a moment of connection and a shared experience between parent and child and then where they feel it in their body. Yes. So beautiful.
2: Yes.
4: Yeah. There's a, you know, Oh, go ahead. Oh,
2: no, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm thinking about listeners and, right now, because one of the things that comes up over and over is about these challenging parents. So, mm-hmm. do, you know, I think we just got to take a few moments of understanding how Nicole and I work, you know, um, and how we were trained and in, in functional family therapy really taught us um, to be relentless in our reframes and relentless in our requests. And, you know, that's hard to do um, with parents who just refuse to participate, refuse to, um, change, just keep going. Yes, but yes, but he needs to go to residential. Yes, but yes, but, you know, I think of this story and I still have the client. Um, and I, you know, she, she just did this, uh, I'll just say awful way of punishing her teenage son. And so, you know, I'm trying to help her understand. I know you were frustrated. I know how difficult, you know, but I'm thinking this really pulls you two apart. It makes you go farther away from each other. And she won't stop. She's like, and and this, and this, and this. And I said, but, you know, I'm just going to stop right here. Let's just slow this down, which is a new phrase I've gotten from the the sensory motor somatic world. And I'm like, let's slow this down. I need you to change. (laughs) And I stopped and I paused. And she looked at me and she goes, but, and I go, and I'm going to dig my heels in right now. Yeah. I'm digging them in. Yep. Yeah, I'm not back in. So in humor is another thing, Nicole and I are really just naturally, I think good at. And I go, I'm digging in, I'm digging in. And she's just looking at me. Right. And she finally just collapsed and she goes, I know you're right. Right. But I wouldn't give in. And, and possibly another therapist would be like, there's nothing I can do. She won't change. Right. And I go, we're not leaving the office. I go, you know, I can stay here till about 10 or 11. You know, I'll, I'll call my husband. I'll let him know. Right. And I'm humorous. And I'm like, I'm not backing down. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I said, one of the things I want you to do when you walk out of here is hug your teenager. He's not going to expect it. And I want you to just like tackle him and hug him. And that was just one of the things I had asked. So this is the funniest story. She walks out and she tackles and hugs him. Now, remember, they've been fighting for, you know, years And he's like falling over. He starts laughing and you could see how much he loves it. And he looks at both of you Goes, he goes, were you two smoking pot in there? (laughs) And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, yeah, right? I mean, you know, it was just such a moment, right? And she did that for two weeks straight, like every day she was attacking, hugging him. And he didn't have any problems for two weeks. And I go, see, right? You know, but- Giving tangible changes are important, right? And they're they're not this. Let's sit down and go to dinner and try to talk. It's never going to work. But you know, we we also make parents do things in our office with us, which is another important thing. Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, Annie, as you're sharing that, I'm I'm wondering how do you balance that approach with the potential of just losing the client altogether, like in. in a setting okay. of oftentimes i feel with parents as i'm like kind of towing this line of colluding enough with them to earn trust from them and a commitment to the process will also how do i challenge and and push just enough and i always have such a hard time in that place
2: yeah it's it's a lot of compassion for where they're at so you know that's the ending of the story but you know for many sessions, I'm like, I can tell you're hopeless. You've you've been to how many therapists? This is difficult. I can't believe what he did. So I'm going to really give you ways to change this. You're probably not going to like what I'm going to ask you to do, but I'm going to tell you it's going to work, right? I You're here, you're paying me, you know, these are all comments I make, like you're paying me money to help you shift. Um, I can see this is difficult. I too don't want him to end up committing crimes, right? I, I understand that. I, I think these are serious behaviors and we have to do something about it. And so here's my solutions, right? Yeah. So it's a lot of real strong, strong compassion um, with the parent, but also not just staying in compassion. And that's right. the other trick is that I don't just show compassion. I'm always saying, and I'm going to help change the system. There's going to be a lot mm-hmm. of difficult things. Um, you know, I have an I had a new set of parents yesterday and I meet with parents first and I said, "So, you know, I'm really tough. Are you sure you're up for me?" You know, and again, it's the humor, right? Yeah. I'm actually really good. I don't know if anybody told you I'm really good. So, but you got to do things, you're going to have to do a lot of hard things with me. Are you ready? Right? So, you know, mm-hmm. and and then, you know, I was also deeply compassionate with the mother who's just telling me awful stories about what's going on with her son. Right, mm-hmm. so it's all of that in in one hour of lots of stuff, and you know, really just getting them to get that we are going to help them, which is the hopelessness that Nicole and I were taught to really say. We know you're hopeless and we're going to help you change. We can help you fix this. Yeah. I didn't say I could fix it. I said, we're going to help you fix this. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you're going to have to hang in there with me. This is a, a road, but we're going to get to where you want to be, which is a son who's doing really well or a daughter who's doing really well. So even and, though- And I think keeping crazy.
3: keeping the balance so that everyone in the family feels like they're heard and understood. Yeah. Right. So it's not heavy on mom where Nicole and Annie are aligning with mom and siding with mom because that happens a lot with teens. See, you listen to mom. You met with mom alone. And now I feel like, you know, you have a completely different opinion of me. So it's really finding that balance and working with families, especially teens, so that everyone feels connected and aligned with you as a therapist. Yeah. So we always say equal alignment with everyone within the family system so that they feel heard and understood.
4: Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It it sounds like there's a, you're pushing hard against the presentation and behaviors of the parent and teen, but in support of meeting their ultimate desires. Correct. Like in support of them getting their needs met.
2: Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. You know, you're in a lot of pain. I can see how much pain. You know, you're really scared about your son. I am too. I am. When I hear these kids, what they're doing, right? You know, it's no longer I stole something from a store. It's, you know, I grabbed a weapon and I went, at, you know, and I'm like, I'm scared. So can we work together? You're, I, another phrase I use is I really need you to be my co-therapist. Mm-hmm. and So that really elevates these parents who, you know, say, I, I can't do anything to help you or I don't believe in therapy. You know, can you be my co-therapist? I'm going to rely on you to be giving me information about how to
4: heal him. Yeah, so I still so love.
2: In, yeah, the empowerment oh. role.
4: Yeah, I, I was just going to say I still so love the the reframing and the empowerment uh, kind of values. One of the presentations uh, within a family dynamic that um, I've been processing just a lot with consultees is this very. Uh, ingrained commitment to lying, um, mm-hmm. where it, it's both on you know the 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 child or who is the identified client in a lot of these cases, um, but it, it may be external behaviors that are the problem. But the real um, kind of stuck point is the internal uh, you know, hiding and the, the lying behavior that is identified as like, well, I can't take him serious. I don't know. You know, I don't know what he's telling me or what they're telling me. I can't believe them. And I am starting to question my own sense of reality. I -hmm. can't get a straight story. Like all of this, you know, activation around, I don't even know what's real.
2: Mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that.
3: Well, I think that comes up often. Right. So this, I mean, I think Bridger, what what you're speaking to is something that we have all heard. um, And I've heard that for years, right? So parents that are struggling to know, like, can I trust him? Because I find out then that it's actually a completely different story or something along those lines. And that's really challenging. We do do um, a mentalization Mm. exercise and activity, um, Mm. Annie and I, that I think is really helpful sometimes to understand what is somebody experiencing internally. So choosing with with a parent and a teenager, you know, an issue or a problem that came up and having, let's say it's it's mom and son, having mom think about what might your son have felt in that moment and having, we we actually have body outlines, where would he feel that in his body? And what emotions do you think might've been coming up? What are those negative beliefs that he might have had about self, right? So we do an activity so that they can start to become more tuned into one another. Because the reality is so many teens are not sharing, right, with parents because they're afraid of the consequences. So I'm afraid to tell mom. I'm afraid to confide in mom. I'm afraid then it leads to tons of consequences. So doing something like a mentalization activity, it gets parents and teens to kind of look inward and understand what the other might be experiencing mm-hmm. um, instead of having to guess, right? And then having a dialogue about it after we do the activity. It's one of the most powerful activities mm-hmm. that I do with parents and teens. Love it.
1: Yeah, that's really beautiful. And just one, the development of that skill as a whole is yes. huge and just wellness overall. Mm-hmm. But when they can tune that in, their ability to mentalize with that specific relationship mm-hmm. um, it can just yeah. really alleviate yeah. a lot of the miscommunication and misunderstanding right. that's right. happening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. You know, another thing that's coming up for me as I'm as we're talking, I'm thinking again about listeners is that you know how how I do it sometimes is I will meet. With you know, I I do the assessment. They may be together, and then I'll meet with the teen alone. But I'm also meeting with the parents separately, Um, and that's not for every case, right? There are some cases that I'm not going to do that because the teen might really not trust what I'm doing. But I am sometimes doing two sessions in one week with the family, right? Because I'm trying to shift the family dynamics. And I if I'm just meeting alone with the teen, I'm and then the parents blowing up my phone. So I might as well just have them in for a session, right? Yeah. And so I do, yeah, and I do a lot of hard work there. And so that's not always possible in clinics. So those, those that are listening that are in mental health clinics going, I'm lucky if I could see this case twice a month, right? Yeah. Um, but that is kind of the desire is that if we could meet with both, we're, we're shifting the system and then I'm giving support to the parent, um, you know, to do things differently at home. So I definitely, I I definitely think that's a big piece that sometimes I don't, I forget, it's just so natural to me to just to meet with parents separately. Yeah. Um, And I do a lot of follow-up by text, you know, so we asked you to do this, how are things going, Mm -hmm. right? I don't try to encourage too much dialogue through texting or phone calls, but I do know if I'm trying to really shift something in the family. I may be, you know, just kind of like I was a director. Everybody's got to take EMDR, restorative justice, you know, right? I'm pushy, I'm bold, I'm in people's faces, and I'm just like, so how to go? How to go when I asked you to do this? Oh, we didn't do it. Okay, so what's what's the challenges? What's the barriers? So, you know, change is hard, right? Change is hard for us, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Nice. So
3: change is scary, yeah. For, yeah for many, yes. many
2: people's families. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so they need this extra support to kind of um, really make a, a significant change. You know, that mother I asked to hug, I texted her every day. How's the hugging? Right. Mm-hmm. And and she was like, it's good. It's great. I tackled him. He ran away. Right. And so, you know, they were on a high for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it, it, it got a good message across to her about what could happen if she was mm-hmm. more affectionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in, in an
1: ideal situation, you'd be able to meet with the, the team individually, the mother or parent or parents, parents individually, yeah. and then even some joint sessions.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And joint sessions, you know, with the boy who was on Capratic, I mean, mom, um, I could do some joint, although he was pretty violent in the sessions and towards her dad was about eight months. Um, I, I didn't want that, but he literally would dissociate and collapse on the floor when I brought up his father. Um, And then finally, one day I looked at him and I said, if I'm going to help things change with your dad, I need to meet with him. I know you're scared. I know you're worried about what's going to happen in that session, but I'm pretty good. And I think I can help him understand that he's too harsh. Mm -hmm. And he shook his head. Yes. Right. And so I made sure that after the session with the father, I texted him. I texted this teeny, never responded back. I said, just want to let you know. I think I helped your dad understand what you need. Right. So I'm always getting the system to trust me and understand that what I'm doing is helpful and good. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Your um, sense of security and just like stableness in like, I'm pretty good and yeah. I'm pretty sure I can help bring such a safe feeling even to me as you're saying it, that I imagine like that sense of certainty is a really important ingredient in just saying like not a promise of something, but I know my abilities and I know my strengths and I know how hard I'm going to work to make this happen.
3: Um, And, and, you know, I think, sorry, Annie, I I think the other piece is, you know, talking about how this tends to work well with others. Like, so we've had so many other um, people that have been in your shoes, maybe not obviously the same exact situation, but the idea that, you know, we've, we've done this before and it's gone really well. And so you have to trust the process a little bit. And I always say, I'm going to be your cheerleader. You've got to put in the work, right? I'm going to really challenge you. I think that, you know, most clients like to know what to expect, right? Mm-hmm. So they they want to know, here's what sessions are going to look like, right? So there are going to be moments where I'm going to work with your entire family. There's going to be times when I'm only going to work with your son. There's going to be times that I'm going to ask you to come in and I'm going to need you to commit commit to that. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, just really providing that hope that yeah. this has worked well with others, coupled with, you know, letting them know the structure of what our work together is going to look like is is really helpful.
2: Well, it, it's an attachment skill too. That's why I say I'm pretty good, right? Because we're always increasing attachment uh, relationships, right? So if i you know i want my mother and father to know what they're doing and to be pretty good at parenting right so i have an underlying message there which is hope what nicole said but it's also like you know i'm i'm if i'm your parent if i'm an attachment figure um i want you to know that i i got your back i i can do this we can get through this right just like when i go to the doctor I want them to Mm. feel, make me feel good, right? That they're competent, that they know what they're doing, right? You know, and I use humor in it, right? I'm pretty good, right? You know, I'm just trying to get that caregiver humor theme. Yeah, yeah,
3: (laughs) humor theme, we got it. But it's important, right? Especially with teenagers, right? Because if we didn't do that, we are met with a lot of resistance and kids Mm -hmm. saying like. I don't want to go back to Annie and Nicole who just sits there. Right. And I think we're our genuine, authentic selves. Right. Infusing some humor into
4: the work. Yeah. We talk a lot about in our trainings, this, this experience that often happens where we are projected onto just these, we call them virtual others in our trainings um, of these people in their lives that we don't even know we're becoming, or they don't even know that we're becoming. But yes. I think it's that authenticity when we actually introduce ourselves as yes. I'm Bridger, I'm not your dad or this you know, figure out in the world. I joke, I, I laugh, but I'm also really committed to this work with you. And I, yes. I really want to understand and help maybe get some change that feels safe enough to, to try out in the real world. It really kind of addresses that projection Uh, if not explicitly on that, on that subconscious, you know, we are clearly in a relationship that's our own, not plagued by the fear of, of these other figures.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
4: Hmm.
1: This is all such good, good material. And I appreciate you guys being willing to just share even the tiniest little bit of your years of experience and knowledge and wisdom on this. Um, Are there any other really like important pieces of that maybe I'm sure there's so much that you guys have done and do. I think
3: the one thing that we always talk about, and this is true when you're working with young kids um, too, but with teenagers and families, allowing yourself to be flexible, um, allowing yourself to kind of have your own agenda, but knowing that we need to be able to be flexible in that and, to um, you know, kind of anything that I'm asking a teenager to do, I'm gonna try to do it with them, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're practicing, and I know everyone you know that is in the EMDR world, hopefully knows this, but you know, breathing an activity, I'm I'm doing it all with you. So I yeah. think you know, showing up as your authentic self is is number one, but being able to be flexible and fluid in working with teens and families is really critical having good snacks available for teenagers yes. oh, yeah. is always a good thing. I mean, they, they want to come back if you have a good, um, yeah. good snacks available. But, you know, I just think the flexibility and um, being fluid in sessions is, is yeah. truly really important. Yeah. You know, Annie, at the very beginning of your introduction, you mentioned,
1: well, and we've all been teens. So one of the first things that qualifies you for this is that, Oh, yes. I've been one before. Yeah. And That really was striking to me of just like, it's so important that we tap into that part of us in order to be in that space of relating and connecting, because it's really hard for an adolescent to connect to someone that's so much older and in a completely different phase of life. But if we can find that experience within ourselves and access some of that, and I'm sure the humor is a part of that, the snacks, absolutely a part of it. Um, sometimes we match in their language and their posture and their cadence and the types of jokes that we're talking about. Um, that just feels like yeah. such an important piece of like finding your inner teenager. Mm-hmm. And, you
2: know. yeah. mm-hmm. and And I think the thing, the only thing I would add to all of this is just having opportunities for expression. So, you know, teens do not want to sit across from me in a chair and I go how are you today right you know so so you know that that teen I've been talking about he didn't speak to me the entire treatment it was about five words and I just had an art table I'd set it up before he'd come in and I had an art table and I had stuff and I said oh could you come here do you see all this right and so we just worked with art and that was really how he expressed himself mm-hmm. and then one day I he walked in, banged his head on my wall, and said, "I don't want to be here." He used a few uh, expletives, um, and I said, "Oh, that's good." And I kick a yoga ball at him. Right? I think, oh, I don't know, he could really get angry. And he looked at me, and I sat on a yoga ball. He sat, and he starts bouncing, and he starts laughing. Right? Mm-hmm. Now that's not every teen that's going to like a yoga ball, right? But I always have. Uh, cool new stuff like Nicole and I are always buying oh, stuff, nice. right? I have splat balls, right? Splat balls—you throw them at the wall, right? And you know, if I if a teen is really struggling, I'll just pull out a new gadget and I'll say, "Oh, if I showed you this today, yet you know, I bought this last week, right?" But keeping them intrigued or using their music or looking at their photos or whatever is a way to engage. So. Keeping this, up on
3: the trends yeah, is, yeah. is so critical too, right? I, I never knew I needed so much TikTok in my life, but <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm just, you You really have to be able to speak yeah. their language. And yeah. so I think it's keeping up with the trends so that you can connect in those ways as a therapist too. Nicole
2: teaches me. She taught me goat. Uh the but- yes. <laughs> She made, a, she made a safe place out of it. I and do. I was,
3: so we have a safe place for teens, and I don't call it safe place. I call it the GOAT. So wow. the greatest of all time yes. place for um, teens to go. And I have to say, I mean, just changing the language with teens yeah. has yeah. shifted, Um, you know, just getting that information um, from them. So, yes, yeah. the GOAT is
2: well, then, uh, then of course, after Nicole teaches me this, I then see graffiti everywhere with the word "goat," and I'm like, "Oh, is that what this means?" Right? You know,
4: it's everywhere, everywhere,
2: it really is everywhere. So, yeah,
4: I love that that point so much, and I think there's such there's such skill um, and the need for community in that to you know have the opportunity to learn from each other and to then go into session learn from the client and still remember you know we have some serious work that we want to accomplish right. here but we don't have to do one or the other like it yes. is something that we combine together to really you know make this approachable and accessible for the for the teen or the family that yes. we're working with
2: yeah definitely
1: well as we're starting to kind of wrap up our time i want to make sure that all of our listeners know about how they can find you guys or find out more um, of the details of some of what you're talking about.
2: Yeah. So we have a a training. It'll be our third time we're doing it. Um, It's EMDR with teens and their resistant caregivers. So we cover all the concepts we talked about today. So they can find it um, at www.anniemonaco.com. And I'm, you know, we'll give you the link. And so our brochure um, is up there, our registration is up there. Um, and so um, it'll be March 13th and 14th. Is that what I yes. said? Yes, I got the dates right. So, yeah, so we have really filled. I mean, I think Nicole and I were taken aback at our first registration. We had to turn people away. I mean, we were, but, but what I realize is there's very few trainings out there on how to yeah. work with teens.
4: Um, I'm yeah. surprised this is only the third time that you're offering yeah. this. <laughs> How often yeah. I talk to to people, um, therapists yeah. and parents and um, yeah. children who all need yeah. this support.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and you know, I I think uh, to be you know honest is like it has to be a three day training. It's it's so many concepts, and so right. Nicole and I spend the second day, the last three hours, we we go through transcripts of our cases, so mm-hmm. people know exactly what we're doing in each phase of EMDR. Um, so it's you. very detailed account of everything we're doing with them. Beautiful.
1: Yeah. Everyone loves the like hands-on,
4: practical. Do I,
3: what does that they do? Session.
4: Yeah. Yes. yes. Enough theory. <laughs> what does it actually look like? <laughs> yes. Yeah. They it. love a
3: form. They love a handout. They love. They all a of hand it. Yeah. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes, that's well, true. And what? Pe- why people come to our trainings a lot is because it's so interactive. We teach right. you. You're in a Zoom breakout room practicing it. You have mm-hmm. a script. And you're practicing it because Mm -hmm. that's the only way people integrate it's not lecture you can hear me but you have to get into a room and practice it so we're very big on that i love that nice yeah
4: yeah Yeah.
1: okay so your website um, that will have all the information about the training any other resources you want to share points of contact for the listeners
2: yeah Uh, nicole you want to say your email um, my through.
3: website is www.nicolewolastherapy. It's kind of long, um, .com. So, you know, just resources are available on my website. The training is available on the website as well. Um, but this was wonderful. Thank you both for having us. Just a yeah. great experience.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for being willing to come on. We're always super excited to get to do interviews.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to us. Yes.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone listening, thank you for, for tuning into the episode and um, there's going to be uh, plenty of points to connect um, within the website there. And then, uh, you know, stay tuned for more uh, great information on, on all things EMDR. Yes. All
0: right.
4: Take care. All right.
0: Thank you. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the Trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and Case Conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.